Hear the word of our God. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. Now it came to pass in those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles, Simon, whom he named also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on the level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases, as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. Then he lifted up his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you poor, For yours is the kingdom of God. This is the word of Almighty God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this, your word. And our prayer is Luke's prayer at the beginning of this gospel. That we would have certainty about Christ. And so we ask that you would Reveal him to us here in your word this morning, and that we would even hear his voice as we consider your holy word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ is compared to one person in Scripture more than any other individual. He's compared to Moses. John starts his gospel with a contrast between Moses and Christ. John 1 verse 17, Christ himself makes a contrast and comparison in John 13, 34, and 35. Paul, again and again, both makes positive comparisons and uh, a few contrasts between Moses and Christ. The book of Hebrews does the same thing. They're also tied together by uh, the song which is sung in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation. The new song is the song of Moses and the Lamb. Not two different opposing songs, but one song. Moses and Christ are very closely linked together. I think if we consider some things about Moses, we can see something in our text here as we approach this important section of the book of Luke. 
a section which I hope to take uh, at least half the summer, if not all of the summer, and who knows, maybe even the fall, on, which is this Sermon on the Plain that we find in the remainder of Luke 6. The context of it is our focus this morning, and I think it might help us if we take time with that focus to think about how this, this introduction of the sermon reflects on a comparison unspoken by Luke between Moses and Christ. We can think about Moses, Moses the great prophet, the prophet of the Old Testament, who has the function of a king and intercedes like a priest. That alone surely makes him the great example of Christ in the Old Testament. But Moses is one who uh, communes with God and goes up on a mountain to commune with God and coming down makes intercession, brings a law code that will establish formally a nation and a kingdom of disciples. And that's what we're seeing Christ do here. Our Savior goes up on a mountain, communes with God, and when he comes down, he brings not only a formal nation established, but also the laws of discipleship within that kingdom. It's a different type of kingdom. But it's important for us to see this this comparison as well as some contrast. There's another comparison and contrast as well, but I'll save that for the end. I want us to think about several things in Christ and Moses this morning. First, Christ is a man of prayer. No gospel emphasizes Christ's prayer life as much as the gospel of Luke. In fact, Luke is the gospel that, when talking about the establishment of the Twelve, takes time to mention an entire sleepless night of prayer prior to calling these men. Moses is also, of course, a a man of prayer, and the primary thing that we see in Moses' prayer life in the Pentateuch is that he is a man who has a close relationship with God in prayer, and that he is an intercessor. So God says of Moses, I speak with Moses face to face, even plainly, and not with dark or confusing sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? That's how God describes Moses' relationship with him. Now, granted, Moses there has a special Uh, relationship of divine revelation that is a little different from you and I praying, but his side of it is him praying. He's speaking to God, and that's something we also have the same opportunity to do. Indeed, we get to use that name that he longed to hear, the name of Jesus, when we come to God in prayer. But Moses is a man of prayer and has this relationship with the Father. And the first time he came down the mountain, he prayed an intercessory prayer. Do you remember the instance? He came down the mountain and he heard something. Revelry. 
They were worshipping a golden calf. Well, no, let's, let's get it the way they would say it. They were worshipping Yahweh through a golden calf. And remember what God says to Moses? In essence, he says, stand aside. I will consume them in my wrath. And Moses, all the promises I made Abram, they're yours now. You will be the new Abraham for a new nation. What does Moses do? I fear too many of us would say, Abraham sounds pretty great. These people have only complained against me this whole time anyway. I I could be the head of something new. Moses doesn't do that, does he? He actually steps between God and the people. And he intercedes, he pleads for them based on God's character and God's promises and God's own reputation. Moses was a man of prayer. And this is seen at Mount Sinai in him interceding and pleading. Now I I say that because I, I wonder if that might give us a hint at what Christ is doing on the mountain that night when he's praying. He spends the whole night in prayer. And what are we to do with that? Well, we could do something very generic with that. We could say, this shows how important prayer is, and we also ought to be people of prayer. And that's a good application. It's general, but it's good. Dale Ralph Davis puts it something like this. He he says, if even the Son of God could not short-circuit, is that the right phrase? Uh, maybe it's sidestep, something like that, prayer in his relationship with the Father. How can any disciple think that they cannot pray and have a good relationship with God? So that is an appropriate application of verse 1, but it's very general. Then we, we could be more specific, and so some commentaries, for example, will say, Well, this shows the importance of praying about big decisions. Especially elders and pastors you're going to call or or something like that. Because Christ is praying there about whom to call. My struggle with that, and this is where we get into that confusing thing about the God-man. It's the question, Christ as fully God. Was he unclear as to whom he would call to be his apostles? He's fully God. He's fully man. This is hard for us. It's one of the secret things, I think, that we're to trust God on without thinking we can fully figure out. But I think the Lutheran scholar Linsky is right when he says, Christ was not up there praying about whom to call, but rather praying for those he would call. There's a distinction there, isn't there? Here are 12 men. Their lives will never be the same. They will lose the love of family members because of what will happen this morning when Jesus calls them as apostles. They will lose friendships. They will lose their jobs. 
They will lose their homes. They will suffer physical persecution as well as outward hatred. And all except one of them will presumably be martyred. At least that's what church history tells us. All except John died a martyr's death. And John didn't have it better. He was dipped in boiling oil and he just didn't die. These men need prayer. They're being called to be the foundation of something that will turn the world upside down. The tools that God will use, that Christ will use to build his kingdom. And they need prayer. It's not the last time that Christ intercedes for these men. You can go and you can consider John 17. If you want a taste for what he probably was praying, something similar to anyway, that day, that night on the mountain, John 17. Or you can consider what he says that same night as John 17 to Peter. He says in Luke 22, Simon, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. This is what Christ is doing on that mountain. Like Moses before, he is interceding with God the Father on behalf of his people. And he doesn't only do it for the apostles. John 17 shows us that, doesn't it? At first, he's praying for those with him in the room. And then he expands it to all his people for whom he prays. 1 Timothy 2.5, 1 John 2.1, Ephesians 1, 7-10, all are just some examples of Christ's intercession for you and for all those who have faith in Christ. Intercession that we might be forgiven, that we might be sanctified, and that you might be preserved through trial. This is our Savior, our, our intercessor in prayer. Another thing we see in our text is a nation established. As we think about Moses coming down from Sinai, of course, the 12 tribes existed for hundreds of years before that. But it's generally understood that the nation of Israel was first seen as a nation and not just 12 tribes descended from a man at Mount Sinai. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and establishes this nation. And we even read about this, uh, just a small taste of it in Exodus with Peter this morning. As he comes down, he comes and he establishes covenant law. What we read with Peter was an emphasis, the covenant law in the Ten Commandments. But you realize that that Ten Commandments, the moral law at the foot of the mountain, then Moses further by inspiration fills out what that moral law looks like in terms of Israelite worship in the ceremonial law as we have it in Leviticus and what it looks like in terms of civil life in Deuteronomy. These are both applications 
of the Ten Commandments for the daily life of the Old Testament people of God. So as Moses comes down the mountain, he's establishing a nation with formal covenant law code and and with structure. Because in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, one of the big things we see is leadership established. Some of it's predictive leadership. When you have a king, they won't have him for hundreds of years. But when you have him, this is what he will look like and who he should be. Some of it is immediate. Who will be the priests? Who will serve with the priests in the ceremonial law and in the worship and the temple and tabernacle worship practices? And some of it has to do with simply the civil rulers, the elders of the land. But there is an establishment of this all from 12 tribes. And here on the mountain in our text, Christ calls 12 to come up to him, not tribes this time, but apostles. And the New Testament links these things. The New Testament sees the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes as being uh, connected. Think of the end of the Bible. The new heavens and the new earth are symbolically depicted with the city of God. And the foundation stones have the 12 apostles' names. Uh, I've always wondered, and of course it's symbolic, but which, which apostle's name gets that 12th spot? Because there were more than one appointed after Judas. But that's another, another thing. That's something we'll just have to find out someday. But there, then there's also the 12 gates. And they each have one of the 12 tribes. You see how the two things, the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God, the fullness of the Old Testament people of God is all 12 tribes, not just Judah. And the New Testament people of God is all 12 apostles. That is all the people of God from all tribes, tongues, nations, and peoples. And they're the fullness of God's people in all time and place. So when Christ establishes the twelve, he's establishing a nation out of the multitude of his disciples. In fact, I think the apostles hint that they understand this because when Christ ascends into heaven, they gather together and they say, now Judas is gone. And their thought isn't, but the 11 of us are still here. Their thought is, therefore, we must have a 12th. And he, like us, must have been with Christ for the three years of his ministry and witnessed his resurrection. And so they appoint a new 12th. And in the New Testament, we also find Barnabas and Paul and James, Christ's half-brother, all referred to as apostles. And so presumably for a while, this is at least one of the main viewpoints, every time one of the 12 died, they would appoint a new one. But that didn't continue forever. Probably it stopped being done when they had the written word of God starting to come forth from Paul and from the gospel writers. 
Well, that, that brings up an important distinction for us. Apostles and disciples. And I know this is a bit of a tangent, but it's an important one, isn't it? Because we tend to use them as synonyms. Apostles and disciples. This week I was getting ready to print a coloring page for our kids that would have, you know, 12 faces on it for the kids to write apostles' names next to. And three of them that I found, and then I forgot to print any of them, three of them said, the 12 disciples. And I thought, well, this is great, because I'll print it, and then I'll cross out disciples, and I'll write apostles, and that'll just make it a good learning lesson for our kids, coloring the page, but then I didn't print it. Um, but, but that's just, that's how we think, isn't it? But the reality is there were 11, 11 of the apostles were, were true disciples. But there were many more disciples than just 12. And we see that in our text itself. The crowd here on the mountain who will hear the sermon that we're going to look at this summer is made up of the 12 and the crowd of his disciples and also a great multitude of other people whom the Holy Spirit is telling us didn't have faith in Christ. They weren't disciples, at least not when they came. That's a great group to preach to. That's the dream. Unbelievers and believers. And here they are in one crowd. But what is the distinction? Disciples simply means learner. And in their day, the learner and the disciple also was uh, thought of as one who followed. And so it's someone who would follow around learning. Now, many of the disciples didn't quit their jobs and just follow Jesus around all day. Many of them, no doubt, would have kept doing their day jobs. And then whenever they had the opportunity and Jesus was in the area, they would find ways to spend time learning from him. But the twelve enter into Christ's seminary. They are with him day and night. They are with him until his death, and they witness him after his death. Apostle means messenger or sent one. This is the great irony of uh, people claiming to be apostles in our day and age. I don't know if any of you have seen that Robert Duvall movie, The Apostle. I'm not recommending it. But there's this interesting scene where this, this uh, not-too-righteous man walks into a lake one morning and appoints himself the Apostle of Christ. And that's kind of the start of the movie. And then he starts this big revival thing. And just the utter irony when Apostle means sent one. To appoint yourself. I'm sending myself. No, Christ called the twelve, and they are the foundation of the church, as Ephesians 2 makes clear. Uh, A nation without walls and without boundaries, without uh, a tongue, and and without uh, restrictions like geography. This is a wondrous kingdom that goes throughout the world and indeed is to be taken to every place on the globe. This is a nation of every tribe, tongue, peoples, 
and nation. And it is the nation which will endure when all governments and nations are brought to their knees before the king. Here is a greater nation than just the outward nation of Israel in the Old Testament, which Moses established. Here Christ is establishing the true Israel, and he's doing it upon this foundation of the apostles. Which also brings us to the other thing he's basing it on, which is a covenant law code delivered. Moses brought the commandments down the mountain. He established a covenant law of the land. This is what the people will look like if they truly are the Israel of God. That's what Moses was doing there. In fact, there is an implication of discipleship in the Old Testament law code. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then there's the implied thing, isn't there? Therefore, since I did this, this is how you should live. And we are given the law, the Ten Commandments, as the description of the kingdom citizen who has been redeemed from slavery and bondage. So also Christ does here. That's going to be our big focus this summer. We enter in. I just read the first few words of this amazing sermon this morning. Blessed are you poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He's establishing a nation. But what does the kingdom citizen look like? And just as Moses filled out the details of civil law and ceremonial law uh, based on the moral law, here Christ will unpack the same moral law. He will plant it deep in our hearts. He will describe for us what it really should look like as opposed to the legalistic confusion we so often attach to it. it. He will show us what it looks like in our neighborhoods and in our homes, and in our courts, not as a earthly nation, but as the people of God, the church. He's going to dig deep into what discipleship requires of the kingdom citizen. And that will be our prayer this summer, that he will plant this sermon of Luke 6 deeply in us as well. John 1.17 declares, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, then there's one more contrast I want to present between Moses and Christ here in our passage. And that has to do with the glory that descended the mountain. We read about the glory that descended the mountain with Peter at Mount Sinai. Descended the mountain at Mount Sinai with Peter earlier in our service. Right? Here's Moses. Unaware. Unaware that just seeing the faintest glimpse of the smallest part 
of the glory of God as he was hidden in the cleft of a rock had left his face Shekinah glory, shining like that pillar of fire. And he comes down and the people are terrified. And so he veils himself. He veils himself. There's glory. The people know it, but they cannot behold it. But there's a big difference here, isn't there? In our text, although Christ's face does not shine at this instance, he does come down with the glory, doesn't he? Why does the crowd come out, even some who do not believe? We read it right here in our text, verse 19. The whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and healed them all. We don't often hear of that kind of language. Usually it's Christ touching, Christ speaking. There is that woman who reached out and touched him and he said, who touched me? And the disciples, remember, are utterly confused. The apostles, they say, we're in the middle of a crowd. We're all bumping each other. What do you mean someone touched you? But realize that that wasn't a one-time occurrence. That woman had something in her mind to tie her hope to because here, when Christ comes down the mountain, it's not just that he can touch and speak to others with his power, but his power is so present that the whole crowd who comes around him experiences healing. That's glory. But you see the contrast. Moses shines with the glory of God, derivative glory. And it terrifies. And the people flee. Christ comes down the mountain with his own power and glory that he has shared with the Father since the foundation of the world. And people are drawn to him. As he declares this covenant nation and the law and the character of the covenant disciple, it does not terrify. It draws in grace and truth to the glory of the King. This is a beautiful sight. Realize what is said in 2 Corinthians 3, as we've read earlier, that no longer are we stuck with the veiling. Why? But we with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Or in other words, as opposed to with Moses, where the glory of Christ was veiled and shadowed through types and figures, we behold Christ clearly portrayed as crucified. 
Galatians 3 verse 1. The glory is before us. And in Christ we need not tremble. Well, let me draw a few applications. These all overlap, so I don't know how clearly distinct they'll be. But four applications this morning. The first, as we see these comparisons, and it sets, therefore, the whole of Luke 6 as uh, the establishment of, a declaration of a nation being established, a nation of which we are part, we need to realize then as we read this passage that Christianity is a covenant kingdom of disciples. We can easily think of it as my relationship with Christ. And Christianity is personal like that, isn't it? No one is saved who isn't personally saved. Who doesn't personally have faith and express repentance and personally look to Christ and rest in Christ and having rested in him, know his gracious presence. But it's not a solo thing. He redeems us out from the world. And into a kingdom. Think of what Peter himself will say of this very thing. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. No one is saved to be left outside of the nation of God. He declares us in our salvation citizens. And as Psalm 87 says, he writes our names as if we had always been citizens of his kingdom in the books of the land. So as we gaze on this chapter as we look at the Beatitudes, as we hear Christ's commands and his, his warnings of woe if we neglect his word, we must do so not only as personal, individual believers, but as a body and in terms of our place within the people of God. Second, flowing right out of that, all Christians, therefore, must be disciples. Sometimes in our pride, we act like we think we are apostles. We may not use that term, but we we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. And of course, brothers who are serving in office here, there's a special temptation for us to do that very thing. And we need to be on guard from that. But of course, there's another temptation as Christians as well, isn't there? It's the other extreme. To be lazy and to view ourselves as little more in practice than a seat warmer on Sunday morning. Well, I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I just, I show up for an hour, two hours on Sunday morning. But actually, Christ is calling us to something in between those two things. 
The kingdom citizen is a disciple. Therefore, one who learns and follows. One who uh, follows Christ and then imitates Christ and obeys Christ. Takes instruction from his word. So the third application flowing out of that is, therefore, listen. We need to be those who continue and continually listen to the word of God. God has spoken and he is not silent. His word is living and active and we have it here to guide our steps This is why Peter in 1 Peter, as he writes of us being a holy nation, continues with his thought that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's one act of a disciple, worship. But then he'll go on in the text, beloved, abstain from fleshly lusts that war against your soul. He's saying be disciples who have heard God's commands and Obey them. That's what the nation ought to look like, Peter is saying. And so we need to be disciples who listen to God's word. I have a suggestion. I don't have the authority to command this about your devotional lives, but I have a suggestion. I'll be gone for two weeks. That means we have the introduction to the Sermon on the Plain this week, and then two weeks before we get into it. And I would encourage you to make use of that time to consider Christ's national, that is, church, that is, uh, kingdom of God instruction. So this week, I would encourage you to read the rest of Luke chapter 6. And next week, I would encourage you to read Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. We'll talk about how similar they are, or are they, are they the same sermon? Told it. We'll talk about that this summer, but read one of them this week, and then read the next the following week, and then we'll come back together in three weeks from today, and Lord willing, start looking at this sermon together. But more than that, I would encourage you, since this is a sermon to the nation and not to the individual, to the kingdom citizens and not the individual. I would encourage you to read these chapters with another believer. Maybe your family within your household, or maybe call up someone else in the church, maybe someone you don't usually spend time with, and say, the next two weeks, can we either on the phone or together on a front porch, read Luke 6 and Matthew 5 through 7 And as we read them, think about what that requires of us as part of the body of Christ. That's my encouragement, because this is is a covenant kingdom of disciples that Christ is establishing upon his word delivered through the apostles. Therefore, we need to listen and take heed. But fourth and finally, I think... I should also say to you, take heart. As you read these sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain, take heart. 
Because if you have any humility at all, you will see how far short you fall of the glory of God. If you were to be judged according to these sermons in your own righteousness. But take heart. Because remember, the one in whose righteousness you are judged intercedes continually for you. Not for a single night, but day and night before the presence of his Father. It is Satan's desire that what he commands us as his disciples be that which we reject. But Christ intercedes that our faith might not fail. May God cause these words in Luke 6 to be more and more true of us this summer as we gaze upon this sermon. Let's pray.